We're so glad you could join us for the mornings at YCBC today. We want to thank you for being a part of our online family and we hope that this message encourages you, blesses you and helps you grow in your walk with Him. So let's get into the Word. So this morning is our seventh and final uh, chapter of our Kings of Judah series, uh, working through the, the book of 2 Chronicles. And it's not uh, been intentionally for this purpose, but it's been fun putting our Bible readers to the test and challenging them with some of the, the names of places and, and people that appear in uh, 2 Chronicles, and well, throughout the Old Testament, but specifically in 2 Chronicles. It's not my normal practice to dedicate a, a sermon to anyone but God, but this morning I'd like to dedicate this message to my eldest son. Uh, for those who are visiting, that makes sense when you learn that my eldest son's name is Josiah. And so uh, he was going to be Levi, actually, in the womb. He was going to be Levi. We, we spoke of him as Levi once we discovered that he was going to be a boy. And, and the, the piece of scripture that I felt inspired to name him Levi from was, was, was a piece of scripture that said, Levi will have no inheritance from the land. His inheritance will be the Lord. And for me, that was kind of like, well... I was at Bible college at the time, and I'm like, I'm not sure I'm going to have any inheritance to, to give this guy, but uh, we'll try and lead him into an inheritance in the Lord. But as events transpired, and, and someone else in our church at the time who had almost exactly the same due date announced that they were going to call their son, Levi, a few days before Josiah was born. And so we thought, oh, we don't want to have two Levi's with kind of the same birth date in the same church off off the get-go, if that happens by coincidence, that's okay, but knowing ahead, and so we felt to call him Josiah. And, and so what jumped out about that for us was that Josiah was a restorer of worship. And, and, and that's been a, my prayer and my heart for, for my son. Obviously, he needs to make his own decisions about his life, and I'm not going to be a um, the equivalent of a sideline dad in terms of worship for him, but he can play the piano really well. Uh, and he's growing in that. And so as we pray, as we come to God's word this morning, I ask you to indulge me as I also pray over my son's life uh, this morning. We'll have a, we'll have a sermon on uh, Caleb and Samson at some point in the future and, and they will uh, get included as well. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of King Josiah that we might learn from it and learn to be as unwavering as he was. And at the same time, Father, I thank you for the life of my son, Josiah, and I pray over his life that he would be a person who restores worship, whether that be publicly or privately or or in any capacity, Father, I pray that he would be uh, someone who knows your deep love for him, that he would deeply love you, and that he would be a champion of worship that he would carry a, a flame, a torch of worship in every part of his life. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, uh, Deb preached a great message about King Hezekiah. Uh, and if you haven't, uh, weren't here to hear that and you haven't had a chance to yet, just a reminder that all of our messages are up on uh, podcasts. You can listen to them through a whole bunch of places. The best way to go is to our website to find those but Hezekiah was a shining light. He was, he was a, a, a redemption from the Lord in the midst of dark days for Judah. But between Hezekiah and Josiah, there were two kings who wavered. There were more dark days for Judah. There was Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, who, who had said that he was worse 
than all of the peoples that the, the Lord had driven out of the land before his promised, uh, before he gave the promise to his people. But Manasseh repented later in life. But then Manasseh's son, Amon, was kind of the same as Manasseh, but without the repentance. And so Manasseh's son, Amon, was another bad king. It was more dark days for Judah. And so then, uh, with all the political machinations that were happening at the time and this religious undertone to it, Amon was assassinated and his son Josiah was put upon the throne at eight years of age. It's, it's uh, alarming in some sense that my, my second son turned eight during the week, so my oldest son is nine, and to think that he would be king would be somewhat concerning, but I'm sure he had some uh, help and some governors. But we're told uh, this, this heading statement. So all of the kings through two chronicles, all of the kings through one chronicles as well, of course, but they have this heading statement. The first thing that's said about them is pretty well the summary of their life. And so it says, as Neil read for us in, just, in two chronicles, 34, 1 and 2, that Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David. As we've talked about, if, if they're a good king, they kind of skip all the actual fathers that came between and go right back to David. He was the exemplar of what it meant to be a good king. And then this, this phrase that I want us to capture, this last bit this morning, he followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. This is actually a, a phrase that is picked up from Deuteronomy chapter 5. You can read it in verses 32 and 33. And, and, and this is in the law. This is in God's word. And it says, follow the law of the Lord. Do not turn to the left or to the right. Don't, don't kind of go off any side routes in your pursuit of following the, the word of God, in, in the pursuit of basing your life upon the way that God has told you to live. Don't turn aside to the right or to the left. And so for this to be spoken over a person is to say that, that they, as much as anyone else possibly could, as much as any human who wasn't himself God like Jesus was, Josiah was a good king who didn't waver, didn't turn to the left or to the right. And so I've entitled this morning's message, Unwavering. I want you to say that this morning, Unwavering. All right, we did it without having to count and everything. See, he was single-minded in his devotion to the Lord. We're told that he began to seek after the Lord, but then he began to put it into action. He didn't just read or, or pursue God in theory. He put it into action. He was single-minded in his devotion. He was uncompromising. He was all in. And it's a good point to remind us that that's, that's the phrase that we've been exploring this year as a kind of a vision or a, a theme for this year is what does it look like to be all in for God? And so as we think about the unwavering King Josiah, he's a good example for us of, of what does it look like to be all in? What does it look like for you and I to not waver in our faith? To, like Josiah, not turn to the left or to the right. And so this morning, I just want to track through the life of King Josiah for a little while and, and pick out three things that Josiah did 
that we can embrace and, and, and seek to live out in a different way because we're not the king of Judah. You're the king or queen of yourself. And so we're going to seek to, to see what can we discover of Josiah's life that we can embrace for our own. And so the first thing that Josiah did is he removed idols. And so in Josiah's time, we can think of an idol as a, a literal object which was worshipped, a carving or, or, or a, a pole or, or some physical thing that was representative of a god that would be worshipped. Now, in, in a Western context, that's not so much what we see too often. Of course, in the, in the world today, there are still many, many literal idols, but... But so for us, we kind of need to read in because we, we, it's too easy for us to say, well, I don't have any idols in my life. You can come search my house. There's no Asherah poles and, and no Baals in my house. But so we need to more think of an idol as, as something that distracts or draws us away from unwavering devotion to God. And so Josiah removed idols. In, in 2 Chronicles 34.3, it says, In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. So he's 16 years old, a teenager still. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. And so Hezekiah, his, his great-grandfather, had torn down all the idols and all of the Asherah poles and all of the high places, but his grandfather Amon, uh, sorry, his grandfather Manasseh had rebuilt them all. And his father Amon worshipped them all the more. And so Josiah sought the Lord at 16, and at 20 he began to purge Judah of all false worship. in an uncompromising way, in an unwavering way, in a ruthless, in an even brutal way. And so if we read through the account of Chronicles, it's, it's kind of pretty rough and ruthless. But if you read the story of Josiah in, in the account of Kings, it becomes even more brutal. He was completely unaccepting, uncompromising, ruthless, and to the degree of being brutal, in his desire to remove all objects and all false worship from Judah. In a way that might make us uncomfortable today. And so the first thing I would say is, we need to be careful not to judge ancient times by modern sensibilities. This was a very, very different time. We're talking about 3,000 years ago. But I would also say that some of these practices of false worship were things that many people would call for the death penalty for today. Some of these practices of, of false worship involve child sacrifice and things like that. I'm not a proponent of the death penalty in any means, but, but we need to be not too quick to judge. But I'd also want to say that this is not this, this brutal wiping out of all uh, other religions is not the pathway that Jesus calls us to. We're not called by Jesus to destroy our enemies, we're called to love them. And that includes loving, loving people of other religions. So the question is, what can we learn from Josiah's unwavering removal of idol worship? 
Is there any application of that to our lives? Well, I would suggest this morning, absolutely. I would suggest this morning that we're to be no less unwavering, we're to be no less ruthless in the removal of false worship and idols, we're to be no less brutal in the uprooting of all competing devotions other than the Lord, but not in others around us, but in our own lives. As I said, we're not the king of Judah. We're the king or queen of our own lives. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 29 and 30, Jesus says this, and he's speaking specifically of, of sin here, but I think we can apply it more broadly. It says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And so I'd suggest that most Bible scholars would say that Jesus is using an alarming metaphor to, to point out the extremity that we should go to to remove sin from our life. I don't think he's literally saying that we should have a whole, otherwise we'd have a church with not many hands and eyeballs left in it. But what Jesus is saying is that we should be ruthless in our pursuit to remove sin from our life and, and worshipping other things, whether it's a literal object we bow down to and worship or whether it's just something that we devote so much time and effort and energy to that should only be devoted to God, then that's the ultimate sin. Idolatry is the ultimate sin. And so if we're to be like Josiah... Where to be unwavering like him, then we should be ruthless in the removal of sin and false devotion from our own lives. Maybe for us it's a, a particular area of sin. Maybe it's an unholy level of devotion to Instagram and Facebook. But whatever it is, it's, it's something that we should pursue in all that competes with God in our life. In fact, it's actually much harder with those things that, that aren't overt sins, but we devote ourselves to because the, the line is, is far less easy to tell when we've stepped over it. And so Josiah removed idols from Judah. We should remove all idols from our life. And Josiah restored the temple. Josiah restored the temple. And so in 2 Chronicles 34.8, it says that in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, so he was 26 years old, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Maesiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord, his God. And so Josiah didn't just tear down objects of false worship, he restored the temple. Because if he re removed all false and foreign worship, all worship that wasn't worship of the one and only true God, but didn't restore the temple, what you end up with is a secular society.
The temple of God, we're told in verse 11, had been allowed to fall into ruin. And so Josiah set about a significant renovation. The thing about renovation, and Helen is here this morning, they're involved in renovation of their home at the moment, and she was just sharing with me the other day how uh, uh, turning upside down of their life it is in that season of renovation. And she didn't share this, but I'm sure it costs money. I've not renovated, but I'm sure for those who've done a renovation, it costs lots of money as well, which I bless you in that. That's not a critique, but, but the thing is that this renovation of the temple would have been time-consuming and costly. And I'm sure there were those in Judah at the time who, who Judah wasn't in a great space in this moment. They'd been conquered and then rebelled against those who'd conquered them. They, they, they weren't in the most strong political position. The, the northern king of, kingdom of Israel that we've talked about throughout this series was gone. It had been wiped out by Assyria. And so, so this kind of little enclave of, of, of God's people was really small. And Josiah spends time and money on rebuilding what already by this time was an ancient relic, the temple. And so I'm sure there were those in Judah that were saying, couldn't have you spent that time and money on, on other things? We need swords, we need shields, we need to strengthen our walls and to build turrets and, and, and we need to spend this money elsewhere and our roads are falling into ruin. But no, Josiah spent time and effort on rebuilding the building of the temple. Because the thing was, it was more than a building. Rebuilding the temple was about restoring the place of worship in Judah. And not just restoring the place of worship, restoring the centrality of worship in the life of God's people. The temple was the most dominant structure in Jerusalem. And so the restoration of it restored worship as the most dominant thing about the life of Judah. It was the place where God had made his name dwell. It was the place of God's manifest presence amongst his people. And so restoring the temple was about restoring worship, but it was also about restoring a focus on the presence of God in the life of Judah. The thing that made them unique amongst people. For those that know the story of Moses, there's this moment in Moses' life where, where God's gotten cranky uh, with, with Israel, justifiably so, because they're like three minutes out of Egypt and they've started complaining. And not only have they started complaining, Moses was a little bit too long up on the mountain encountering God and so they're like, let's build our own gods. And so God was angry with his people and so he says to Moses, I'm still going to give them the promised land, but I won't go with you. I'll send an angel with you, but I won't go with you. And I think about that and I think, oh, I probably would have been, oh, great, an angel. If God... Promise, if I, you know, if God was like, oh, I'm going to send an angel with you, I probably would have been good. But Moses wasn't going to have any of that. He said, if you're not coming with us, then we're not going. Because then what, what is unique about us if not for the presence of God? And so restoring the temple was restoring worship, but it was also restoring 
a focus on the presence of God amongst the community of God's people. Josiah restored the temple. He restored worship. And so if we're going to be like Josiah, if we're going to be unwavering like Josiah, it's not about a physical building, but it's about restoring the place of worship and the place of God's presence in our own lives. In John four nineteen to 24, this is where Jesus has this encounter with the Samaritan woman by a well and his disciples have gone off into the Samaritan town to try and buy food and Jesus is left resting by the well and this woman comes to the well. Uh, and, and Jesus has this encounter, this conversation with her, and, and he speaks um, a word of knowledge into her life that, that reveals to this woman that he is really, truly the Messiah. And, and so many people in this town of uh, Samar- uh, this Samaritan town come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But the thing we need to know about the Samaritans is, is they occupy this territory that was once the northern kingdom of Israel, that was wiped out and, and exiled well before Judah. And so the people that lived there in Jesus' day were, were a mix of the, the no-gooders, the, the ones who weren't worth exiling, a mix of those and people that had been sent in by the, by the empires that had occupied that territory since. And so what they had was a, was a version of Jewish faith, a version that held to the first five books of the Old Testament, but not the rest. And, and so their theology said uh, they believed that the mountain upon which that Moses received uh, the word of God was in Samaria. And so that was the rightful place of worship. But of course, in, in, in the rest of the Old Testament that we have, it designated Jer- Jerusalem as the place of worship. And so the key theological conflict between Samaritans and Jewish people was where should you worship? And so this woman at the well is, is starting to get a sense that Jesus is more than just an ordinary man, that he might be a prophet. And so she says to him in John chapter 4, verse 19, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors, that's the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation comes. Sorry, salvation is from the Jews. And so Jesus is kind of saying, you worship what you don't really know. You haven't really accepted the full revelation. And, 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 and by the way, yeah, it really is Jerusalem is the place where God had designated for worship. But he's already hinted in those verses that that time is kind of wrapping up. And then he goes on in verse 23 and 24 and he says, yet... Say yet, yet, a few of you are awake. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus is saying it's not actually about the building anymore. It's not about the city or where you are when you worship. It's about worshipping the Father in spirit or in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of the worshippers the Father seeks. And so the Father still seeks worship. It's still his desire that his people would worship him, but it's no longer about where. It's no longer about in which building. It's about the integrity of our worship. Is it 
Is it a worship that is in truth? Is it a worship that comes from the depth of our spirit? Is it a worship that is empowered by the Holy Spirit? God seeks out that kind of worship because God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about the temple, but, but there's this real shift from the temple to the new temple. And, and the New Testament talks about you and me together and as individuals as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if we're to be like Josiah in, our, in being unwavering, then it's still upon us to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the place of worship, but it's about being beyond the idea of a building, not even this building, as, as privileged as we are to worship in it. It's about worshipping in spirit and truth with unwavering devotion, to building up the place of worship in our own lives. This kind of renovation is time-consuming and costly too. There'll often be whispers either from other people or in our own ears that there's better things to do with our time, more important things to spend our money on, more desperate need for our resources. But the work of renovating our inner temple of rebuilding the place, of restoring the place of worship is paramount to having an unwavering faith. It's about a kind of worship that's beyond easy, beyond cheap, beyond offering God just the leftovers. Josiah removed idols, and so should we. Josiah restored the temple, and so should we. And Josiah also returned to God's word. So in 2 Chronicles 34.14, going on from what Neil read for us this morning, it says, while they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, which they were doing that to use that money to renovate it, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. And so not only had the temple then fallen into ruin, it was an ancient relic by this time, but they'd forgotten about God's word. It had kind of been stowed in the temple, in the storerooms, uh, by the book of the law we're talking about, not the whole Old Testament because we're reading this story in the Old Testament, but we're, we're talking about at least those first five chapters of God's word. Probably some of the prophetic writings, but, but especially those first five chapters of God's word that talks about creation, that talks about the exodus, that talks about God giving the Lord a structure, the life of his people around. And so then we're told uh, a few verses down in 19 and 21, it says, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes and he gave these orders to Hilkiah, Akram, uh, Ahikim, son of Shaphan, and all those other guys. He said, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. And so Josiah hears the words of this, this book, God's word read, and he tears his robes and says, oh my goodness, we are in trouble. 
Because we've turned to the right, we've turned to the left, we've wavered all over the place, we've not kept to God's word. And so he sends the priests off to go and talk to a prophet to inquire of God, what's going to happen? And so this is not the part of the story I want to focus on, and so we're going to skip down in a moment in the story, but, but the prophet says to Josiah that, yes, all that's written about in the law, the consequences of turning your back on God is going to come to pass. But you won't have to see it because you've been humble and you've repented. But even so, even been told that Judah's time is numbered, Josiah re-establishes his own life and the life of Judah upon God's word. We're told in verse 30 of 2 Chronicles 34 that he, that is Josiah, went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, that's, that's all of the people, all of the religious kind of components and all of the ordinary people, all the people from the least to the greatest, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. And so not only did he establish his life upon the word of the law, as the, as the, the account in Chronicles goes on, Judah joined him in establishing the life of the nation upon the word of God. And so the last sentence of, of 2 Chronicles 33 says, as long as he lived, that's Josiah, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. And so when they found the Bible, the parts of it that they had, they, they didn't just put it upon a shelf or in a museum. Again, this was an ancient text even by Josiah's time. They didn't just read it and think, oh, that's a nice old story. They renewed their lives upon God's word. They reshaped their entire lives about around it. Because God's word doesn't just speak to our worship. God's word didn't just talk about what they should do with the temple and how they should sacrifice it. It talked about every aspect of their lives, how God's people should live. Like for us, it's not just about a Sunday. It's not just about coming to church on a Sunday and what we should do when we're there. In fact, even the New Testament has very little input on what you should do when you go to church because it talks about us as the church. And so we're going to be unwavering like Josiah. It looks like us coming to God's word and repenting for the ways that we haven't lived our life according to it and returning our lives to it. God's word shouldn't just shape what we do on a Sunday. It should shape what we do every moment of our life. It should shape every aspect of our being. This is what Jesus was talking about when he spoke of his own teaching in Matthew seven twenty four and 25, and he said, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain came down, 
The streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Jesus is saying when, you, when we build our life upon his word. Because Jesus didn't just speak words. The Bible speaks of him as the word. We're very grateful for the scriptures, the word of God, but, but Jesus himself is the word. He is the ultimate revelation of who God is and how we should live. And so we should base every aspect of our life upon the word of God. And so Josiah was unwavering. And I want to suggest that this morning we're, we're called to an all-in kind of faith. We're called to a no-compromises kind of faith. We're called to an unwavering faith like Josiah. And, and for us to follow in the footsteps of Josiah, it looks like removing idols. It looks like restoring the place of worship in our life. It looks like returning to God's word. We should seek to be like Josiah in our own time because he's a shining light in the often dark history of Judah. We should be like Josiah, but that would be an okay sermon to that point, even if I do say so myself. We should be like Josiah. But it's not the answer. This story, at least the story of two chronicles, doesn't end happily ever after. Being like Josiah wasn't enough to save Judah. And it's not enough to save us. We should remove idols. I'm not recanting that. We should restore worship in our life. We, we should return to God's word, but these things won't bring about our salvation. We aren't saved by our works. After Josiah, there was a bunch of short-lived kings. In 2 Chronicles 36, the last chapter of 2 Chronicles, it says, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again. We talked about several sermons ago that God never stopped speaking. He sent messengers to them again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. There was nothing left that Judah, that any king could do to save them. There was no remedy remedy and so in the sweeping changes of which is the dominant empire at the time not Assyria that had been banging on the door for, for a long time but Babylon came and demolished Jerusalem and exiled all the people they thought were worthwhile exiling and then Persia overthrew Babylon and so this isn't actually the end of the two Chronicles story. The last verse is this. With not the king of Assyria, not the king of Babylon, but, but with Kairos, often pronounced Cyrus, but apparently it's meant to be Kairos, the Persian emperor saying these words. 
The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, that's any of the exiled people of God, may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. And so the, the, the story of two chronicles ends with this note of hope. There will be a new temple. It ends with the definitely not Christian Kairos saying, and may the Lord their God be with them. And here's the, here's the answer of that hope. The Lord their God was with them. God answered that prayer, that hope is fulfilled in Jesus who would walk the courts of that temple. We should be like Josiah, but it's not the answer. Jesus is the answer. Our efforts are not the answer. No matter how much we seek to remove idols from our life, no matter how fervently we worship, no matter how diligently we seek to base our life upon God's word, and we should seek to do those things, it is not the answer for our salvation. Jesus is. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. In Colossians chapter 1, and, and a little heads up, after the school holidays, we're going to do a series in Colossians, and, and so I'm giving you a little teaser this morning. But in Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read a bit more than what I've put on the screen, but in Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15, it says this of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The answer is Jesus. For God was pleased, this is what's on the screen, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him, not through the tearing down of idols through our own effort, not through the building up of our fervent worship, not through our legalistic adherence to God's word, but through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's only through Jesus that we can tear down our idols. Only through Jesus that we can worship in spirit and in truth. It's only through Jesus that we can live out God's plan and purpose for our lives. 
I don't know about you, but I've learned a lot through this series going through two Chronicles. I've been encouraged, I've been inspired, I've been challenged. I've been reminded of God's faithfulness. But the story ends with a whisper of hope. A new temple. But we have the privilege of knowing the answer to that whisper of hope. It's Jesus. So commentary writers might disagree with me and and argue the point, but I want to suggest that the answer to the question of 2 Chronicles, the answer, in fact, to the question of the Old Testament, the answer to the questions of life, the answer to our failing efforts at righteousness and salvation, the answer to the problem of sin, the answer to every question is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And so let our devotion to that truth be unwavering. Let's not turn to the right or to the left, but fix our eyes upon Jesus. And so I thank you, Father, for the lessons we have learned throughout this whole series on the kings of Judah. I thank you for the example of Josiah. Just a boy. Just a young man. But one who was a blazing light in his time. But I thank you that he demonstrates perhaps better than anyone for us that no matter how righteous we are, that's not the answer. No matter how hard we work, that's not the answer. But the answer is Jesus. And so may our lives be lived in unwavering devotion to that truth. I pray in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. As you head back into your week, we want to encourage you to stay in His Word, stay in His love, and stay strong in your faith. Don't forget to keep up to date with what's happening via Facebook, Instagram, or via our website at ycbc.church. See you soon.